Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. And welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, ugly gorilla. And joining us tonight, he is a writer of horror short stories and also the co-host of the A Nice Chianti podcast with Zoe Smith. It is John Crinan. John, hello. Hello, thank you for having me, guys. Thank you for doing this, sir, and thank you for bringing this film because this is one that... Um, I've been wanting to do for a little while in some capacity and we had tossed around various ways of doing it, various kind of formats from kind of live commentaries and stuff. But when we asked you to do this and it was one of the the films that you kind of came to the table with, it made sense to just do it, get it done and then it's done. Yeah, no time like the present. I was so excited when you guys picked this one out of my suggestions. (laughs) to be to be fair i mean generally when we're talking to people about doing this we ask them to send over if they have a few in mind to send over a few to choose from and when you sent them over one andy was like this is the strongest list that anyone has ever sent us and two we're doing congo oh (laughs) what a compliment that is the strongest list i'll take that thank you so uh congo why this one okay why this one well there's a bunch of reasons Uh, i mean i saw this movie for the first time i guess when it came out Uh, It came out in 1995. I would have seen it probably when it hit VHS. So that might have been a year or two after that. I'm not 100% sure when the release was. And it was just the perfect movie for a young me. It had absolutely everything that I could want. I think it was originally marketed. The reason I first became aware of it is because it was originally marketed as like the next Jurassic Park or it was closely linked to Jurassic Park because of its uh, link to the novel by Michael Crichton. That was what originally got me interested in it. But then when I picked it up and it was Adventures into the Jungle, it had laser guns, it had mutant killer apes (laughs) crushing heads. It was just the perfect film for uh, a young John and I got so into it. And over the years, I've just continued to love it. My my love for it has never died down. I don't know if it's nostalgia or if I just haven't grown up. But I, <laughs> I rock this film out regularly. I think it's a great, fun movie. And not everyone loves it. I've spoken to people who have either never watched it or watched it once and just remember it as that failed Jurassic Park clone. And there's so much more to it than that. This is a, a when you separate it from Jurassic Park and you don't give it that baggage because nothing can compete with that movie. This is a gem of a movie, and uh, yeah, it's so much fun. I mean, you're certainly not wrong when you say that not everyone loves this. Critical reception for this pretty ropey at the time, and maybe you think the years have been kinder to it. We can get to that later, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I contributed to the quite stellar 150 million dollar box office. I saw it in the cinema. Oh wow. Yeah, I don't think a million against a budget of 50. Not bad for the time, but 50 million dollars actually for a budget in 1995 is a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, this is a big budget, like Studio B movie is kind of how I think of it. Yeah. Mitch, you actually compared it unfavorably to Anaconda. Yeah, I thought it like we did an episode on Anaconda and actually an- another episode after that on Anaconda Hunt for the Blood Orchid. And um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of brought to mind Anaconda for me a little bit. I see I well Anaconda I'm a big fan of Anaconda as well so 
I would say that's a compliment to compare it to Anaconda. I think this is better. I think this has got the edge on Anaconda. But uh, I take it you are not a fan of, of either of those movies. Is that safe to say? I, I think that um, we can pick it apart as we go. But John, we do need you to do one thing before we get into the kind of main meat of this conversation. I don't know if you've listened to the show before. I believe you have. What we're going to do is Andy has put 30 seconds on the clock. And for the benefit of anyone who is listening to the show without having seen Congo, we are going to now, uh, I'm going to count you in. And okay. we're going to ask you to give us your best 30 second synopsis of Congo. Sir, are you ready? <laughs> I'm as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> okay, here we go. Three, two, one, go. Okay, so this film follows an expedition heading deep into the jungles of the Congo. Uh, it's a it's an expedition thrown together with three major players. Uh, one of those players is in search of the team who came before them, who, are, who were in the jungle at the start of the movie. Uh, the other party is returning the talking gorilla uh, that they've trained to uh, sign language back to the wild. And the third is uh, looking for a leg- legendary diamond mine called the Lost City of Zinj. And, uh, many... I'm going to need to stop you there. I'm uh... sorry, John. I'm sorry. So what I'll say, John, is that was uh, that's not the most complete synopsis we've ever had, but you hit on some key points. You, like I say, there are kind of like there are three missions going on in this film. <laughs> three main expeditions. You touched on all of those, and crucially, the talking gorilla. The talking gorilla. How could we forget Amy? <laughs> yeah, Amy, Amy herself. So let's jump in. Yeah, I, I just want to quickly say I think Amy's annoying as fuck. I'd have mysteriously broken the backpack. <laughs> you're not the first person i've heard say that i don't get it at all some people are really really annoyed by amy's voice but i think it's very sweet oh yeah, I, I, I don't it's sinister it's like you know like a kid's doll that like <laughs> one of those ones that it's like i need fed and then you like you know, like put a fake spoon in its mouth and it goes mm, mm, mm. i hate her as opposed to in this film when every time every time the gorilla needs something they give it something that would be very bad for it because amy is at various points in this film given a martini a cigar yeah a cigarillo and uh numerous tranquilizers bananas with dope inside is becoming her favorite snack <laughs> <laughs> they're up there for mine yeah they're, they're heading off into the congo with a uh, hyper intelligent drug addicted chimp what could go wrong it's the setup yeah, to let's... so many great parties <laughs> As <laughs> all great stories begin. Yeah. But uh, we begin as another great story begins, The Lion King, mm-hmm. with uh, sweeping shots of the African savanna. Yes, we do. We get to see uh, the, the initial team that I uh, mentioned in my synopsis that I failed to get into 30 seconds, which I'm still <laughs> stinging about. Uh, yeah, they're trekking across <laughs> lovely, lush vistas. It's quite a beautiful <laughs> opening. Yeah. Yes, it certainly is. What I will say, though, is as beautiful as the kind of background images are, there has not been a lot of that $50 million spent on the actual credit sequence themselves because they look like they were just bashed out in a day. <laughs> yeah, the title screen uh, is something to behold, for sure. It's budget, budget <laughs> title screen. Yeah, it's pretty great. But yeah, um, big sweeping shot, Land Rover's tearing across the plains, and uh, perhaps most importantly of all, Bruce Campbell. Yeah, interesting that Bruce Campbell's in this film. Don't get me wrong, I'm happy about that, and I'm surprised that I think it's the first film we've done that has Bruce Campbell in it. Yeah, yeah. 85 in, John. You're the first person to bring a Bruce Campbell film to the table. Wow, okay, that's impressive, right? Right? Yeah. yeah. Did you... <laughs> just, just just piling up those credits. Yeah, I know, right? I didn't know who Bruce Campbell was back when I first watched it, you know, when it first came out. Were you aware of Bruce Campbell when you went to see it in the in the cinema? I was indeed, yeah. yeah. Ah, I mean, okay. I'm I'm, all, I'm pushing 40, so I've got I've got a few years on you guys, I believe. So, uh, yeah, I, I was kind of well, well aware of Bruce Campbell, and 
his work within the horror genre for sure. Um, I really like Bruce Campbell in this film. I actually could have done with more Bruce Campbell in this film because for me this is a film that suits Bruce Campbell's look because I've always thought that Bruce Campbell is an actor kind of out of time in so much as he looks like he would have been a leading man in the 30s or 40s in very similar kind of action films. I 100% agree. That's an interesting point actually because obviously this film is set... Well, it was set in modern day or maybe even near future when it first came out in the 90s because it's dealing with, you know, cutting edge telecommunications. But everything else Mm -hmm. apart from that is very sort of pulp jungle adventure 30s type. It's got that vibe, the whole movie. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of a shame that that we don't see a little more of him because, yeah, I think that he seems to or for all that we see of him at the start, he kind of slides right. He kind of fits into it like a glove. Yeah, yeah. And he's just fantastic in it. He steals that. It's obviously a great little prologue scene, a nice little bit of gore up front with the eye in his hand and just that turn to camera that he does before it cuts to black with the Bruce Campbell scream is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and uh, while all this is kind of going on, Mitch, you'll be pleased to hear that uh, Laura Lenny makes an appearance. Yeah, um, so if I'm going to talk about this uh, objectively, I need to put the fact that, and I don't want to get into this too much because I can't quantify why it is that I dislike Laura Lenny so much. But it's an enduring thing, and she's been in a couple of films that we've done. Yeah, I mean, she was in Mothman Prophecies. Mothman Prophecies, and yeah. I think that's first. That's where this boiling hatred kind of overflowed. It's where you first heard about it. But um, yeah, no, I've, I've, me and Laura Linney have never got on uh, with uh, <laughs> her as a screen presence. Um, so I do have to kind of put that behind me. I think if I'm going to be kind of objective about this, so I'm going to get, I'm going to get out there now. I'm not a fan, but I'm willing to shelve it to try and make this work. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, you, we commend you for this. I haven't actually seen Thanks Mothman much, Prophecies, man. yeah. Oh, it's re- it's really something. <laughs> so she's here as Dr. Karen Ross, and she is communicating via satellite with Charles and, I want to say, Jeffrey. Jeffrey, yeah, yeah, Jeffrey. Uh, they work for Travicom. Travicom, yep, yep, yep. So she's at home in Houston, Texas at this point. Yeah, also it seems to be Travicom is this super high-tech communications company, but all their doors open by just repeatedly shouting your name into a microphone. <laughs> Rudy, 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 Rudy. Yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the password is uh, is great, but he changes it immediately, so who knows what the next one is. It might be five Rudys, it might be six. You, it, you're, it's a guessing game. So Karen talks to uh, Charles via satellite. We find out how the expedition is going. At this point, we also meet R.B. Travis. Yeah, Joe Don Baker, he's great and everything. And he's he's pretty good in this for all the time he's here, but he's an absolute bastard. Oh, he's so despicable in this. How can he? <laughs> how can he uh, value a diamond more than Bruce Campbell? <laughs> a, a, a diamond of a man. Indeed. So Charles is going to be connecting back in, I believe, at this point to kind of fill in R.B. Travis on how this expedition is going. This does not go to plan. No, 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 not at all, because he and his friends are attacked by an unseen force. We only get a glimpse of it at this point as it kind of ruffles its way past the camera. And there's quite a fair amount of kind of grisly gory stuff here there's some pretty good looking smooshed up bodies which i think make a reappearance later just recycle those dummies yeah there's some great gore that bookends this movie it's really interesting actually because you've got gore up front with the eye with the bodies in the destroyed camp and then you go through a long stretch where there's none at all and really it could just be a family adventure film And then in the third act, it's just all gore again. Don't want to jump ahead. (laughs) But I thought that was an interesting little decision to go with. Yeah, I hadn't considered that, but you're right. There was like extremely graphic, like utter atrocities um, (laughs) at the the beginning and end of what is otherwise, yeah, this like kind of like fairly whimsical kind of romp. 
yeah, it's a it's a, a lovely family adventure for the most part. You know, obviously there's some mild peril and there's some cool set pieces happening. But yeah, they just they just they just leave the gore and just push it out to the edges, just to the start and to the end. Yeah. The connection to the satellite has been severed. Charles's fate is unknown. Uh, obviously, Karen. Uh, no, am I believe there's a relationship between Karen and Charles here? Yes, they were once engaged to be married, and we don't ah. find out why. But they are no longer engaged to be married. Yeah, but I'm presumably parted on reasonably amicable terms because she's very invested in getting him back. That's true. Well, I think she just has a little bit more value for human life than Travis does. Uh, Travis obviously <laughs> yeah, only cares about one thing. Uh, Karen Ross just has a, a little bit more humanity, I think, and doesn't care about about Travis's wants for this diamond. She just wants to go in because she agrees very quickly. Obviously, when the communications uplink is made and we see the destroyed camp and Travis is upset about the loss of, of equipment, probably, and the fact that he's going to have to jump through a few more hoops to get his diamond. He doesn't really care about the people. No. Karen Ross is convinced very quickly to jump on a plane and go into this seemingly very dangerous place. I think it's important to mention that Charles is Travis's son. <laughs> oh, yeah. Have we not mentioned that yet? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't believe we did because one of the kind of the deciding factors on Karen to go on this mission is for Travis to prove that this mission is about finding his son not finding the diamonds to the point where she even asks him I'll go if you tell me you love your son <laughs> which he and does he's like, yeah yeah of course I do <laughs> yeah 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 whatever <laughs> speaking of atrocities Mitch I know you just mentioned them a second ago we're about to be faced with another one in the form of Amy the Gorilla um, uh, yeah, straight off to Berkeley, California. We're hopping around all over the map here, uh, from uh, Mount McKenko to uh, Houston, Texas, to Berkeley, California, where a gorilla called Amy is finger painting with only minimal supervision. And uh, yeah, so this is kind of like, uh, like uh, uh, I'm not going to say protagonist, but definitely a key player I've been introduced to here, both uh, Amy and, of course, Dr. Peter Elliott as well. Yeah, Amy's painting is a bit of a one-trick pony. <laughs> it's true. You're not wrong. I mean, like, it's, it's like she is a gorilla. I feel like it's like a little bit of an uncharitable uh, criticism. I'm sorry. I, I expect more. She does spice it up um, with some eyes. And, uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much the extent of it. If you like golden eye-shaped things amongst your greenery, that's about, <laughs> that's about as good as she gets. But she's going to tap into that niche beautifully, though. Yeah, she's the woman for you, if uh, that's what you're after. But yeah, this is ongoing, while also an unseen person plays Doom on a giant desktop PC. And then, straight out here, Dr. Peter Elliott gives a presentation where we do get an understanding of the means by which Amy will be communicating with the characters and us for the rest of the film, which seems to be an electric backpacking gauntlet. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. I've got a big problem with this whole scene where he brings Amy out, because he just brings a gorilla out into an audience of general public you know i don't know who these people are that are sitting there there's no i know that amy is obviously quite docile and we learn to hopefully love her throughout the course of the the film but at this mm -hmm. point she just strolls out into the audience so imagine if you're sitting in a cinema or a theater or something and a gorilla walks down next to you i think i'd have a stronger reaction than a lot of the people in the audience have here that's fair. I, I, yep, yep. I, I want to say, I've mentioned this many times on the show before, but as we know, big apes, big fans are mauling the face and the genitals. I think my reaction will be a little bit more extreme as well because we as an audience and they as an audience at this point don't know that this gorilla is a noted pacifist. 
there is that kind of peaceful gesture of you know holding a bouquet of yellow flowers but other than that they've got nothing to go on no surveying the scene in the crowd here is a very machiavellian looking tim curry brandishing <laughs> an exotic looking ring <laughs> wow and we just have to take a moment to appreciate his character's name which is just stunning Herkimer Hamulka. yeah allow me to repeat that for anyone who missed it what about the 40 minute mark i think you said to me much what is his name? My uh, The first half of my notes is littered with uh, misspellings and, uh, and uh, mispronunciations of... Herkimer Hamolka. Herkimer Hamolka. It's the kind of name that you can you imagine that you've forgotten how to speak as you're saying it. Like, you doubt yourself <laughs> as you're saying it out loud. Like, Herkimer Hamolka. It's like speaking to someone who's really steaming. And it's just it's just kind of like a series of, of, of kind of staccato vowels. Yeah, yeah. I think I've met a couple of Herkimer Hamolkas in the pub, actually, now that you mention it. <laughs> it's a surprisingly common name, depending on where you drink. <laughs> so when you get in a taxi, they're like, where are you going, mate? And you're like, it's just Herkimer Hamolka. And they're like, uh, okay, yep. Just drive around the town until it hits 20 quid and kick you out. <laughs> But Herkimer himself, uh, formerly of Romania, now uh, travelling the world uh, using his apparent vast amount of wealth to uh, do good and claims that he will bankroll this venture to take Amy home because we do learn at this point, Peter is positing, that Amy wants to go home because she keeps painting the jungle. Correct, yeah. Yeah, Homolka's shrugged off the chains of Ceausescu and he is now travelling the world doing good, like you said, Mitch. He's a travelling philanthropist. And uh, yeah, he's happy to, to help. He's just a good guy doing good deeds. John, as an introduction, and as kind of Herkimer turning up and stating his case <laughs> and his raison d'etre in the film, what does this do for you? Do you kind of like, uh, do you think that this is believable on first look? Do you think that there might be something more to it? Do I, do I think that his reasons are sound? I mean, no. I, I, I think as soon as you hear that accent, as soon as you see, see Tim Curry, you know that he's got a little bit of an evil look about him. Everything about his character, like we were talking about earlier when we were talking about it had a kind of 1930s pulp feeling. He's definitely the villain of the piece, it would seem. You know, he's an evil guy, I think, just with that accent. And I don't want to make any statements about people from Romania. I have many Romanian friends, but I don't think that's <laughs> an accurate representation of their accent. And I think he's kind of playing it as a bit of a cartoon villain here. Yes, he's very much a moustache twirling villain, the kind of guy who would like tie you to the train tracks. Exactly. Yeah, very much, very much one of those guys. However, it is time to hit the road and uh, <laughs> get Amy home. So Peter doesn't want Karen to uh, join them on this well, trip. Well, you're, you're jumping ahead a tiny bit here, Mitch. Let's just pull it back a bit. First, we get a scene where Amy's looking at a 3D book and repeatedly asking a grown man to tickle her. Yep. Which <laughs> always yep. creeps me out. Their mm-hmm. relationship overall creeps me out. <laughs> the things that he lets her get away with, the things that they do together, not a fan of it. I guarantee you they've had one or two drunken nights on those martinis where things have gotten a bit steamy. For Christ's sake. But yeah, yeah, tickle the fucking gorilla and shut her up. <laughs> um, but they're about to take off in this plane and go to head for Africa, and it turns out Herkimer Hamolka has had a bit of a cash flow problem. Yes, our friendly Romanian benefactor has uh, hit on some hard times. What a coincidence. Yeah, he's 56 grand short. 56 grand's a hell of a bill for fuel as well. That's brutal. But yeah, luckily, Karen Ross is coming into the picture again and she's there to pick up the tab. <laughs> Karen Ross with her apparently bottomless bit of money. 
Yeah, I mean, it's coming up later on where she's literally stacking it on a table in a few scenes. <laughs> and I just don't know where... I, I don't know how they carry all the equipment that we're about to see. There's a lot of equipment that she's travels. She does not travel light. No, no, not at all. But yeah, she stumps up 56 grand on a whim. And like you say, not to jump ahead too far, but we are a short time away from her literally paying off warlords with stacks of bills. She would almost certainly be, be sold off. I mean... <laughs> With someone like Travis in uh, in command, that company definitely has like a warlord bribe fund, like little pot that you can go for. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me too much. No, yeah. no, Charles seemed to be moving about as a year relatively unmolested until he was killed. Yeah, I kind of get the impression that if Travicom existed in the real world, it'd be the subject of a Michael Moore documentary. <laughs> <laughs> or certainly an episode of Behind the Bastards podcast. For sure, definitely. Everyone's on the plane, and uh, Amy's plied with a martini to calm her down. Do you notice she constantly abuses Karen? Yeah. She's very jealous of Karen. She calls her ugly woman immediately. Any any female <laughs> presence, she's very jealous of. So yeah, she has to get her, her green drop drink, is what she calls it. Calm her nerves, which is kind of understandable. I mean, I think a lot of people have a little drink before they get on a long-haul flight just to kind of settle themselves. So I'm not going to judge yeah, Amy. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I, I have to. I'm a notoriously terrible flyer, as the uh, Edinburgh Airport meltdown of 2019 will prove. Um, <laughs> but I'll get into that another time. <laughs> All but, right. Uh, yeah, I mean... I was going to say, but we're not ready to laugh about that yet. No, 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 no. The damage it caused to my family is too fresh. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, I'm okay with Amy having a drink before she flies. But he puts olives in her martini. What kind of picky fucking gorilla needs olives in her martini? It would have been great if you'd sent it back. She's been given one and she's just been like, no olives. You can make a martini too dirty by putting too much olive juice in it. Okay. And that's a frequent cause for returned martinis. And it, he didn't even, he put it in a martini glass as well, not even in like a sippy cup, you know, which I thought would be easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more to the point, why is it in a fucking martini glass? It would, it would have been amazing if she tried to pick it up and just knocked it and just been like, well, of course I can fucking pick this up. Additional point, why was there a martini glass on that particular plane? Was that something that was already there? Did the plane have a minibar, or does he carry that with him to placate the picky gorilla? Oh, I think he must have a little minibar in one of those cases that they're carting about, for sure. Because she's got the banana-filled one, which yeah. we see later, so maybe there's a booze one as well. Yeah, we mixology kit. Yeah. And that gorilla's allowed, allowed free reign of that crate full of bananas. That seems like a very risky thing to me. She only had one. In her defence, she only had one. I'm going to stand up for Amy here. She's got restraint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's got some willpower. Also, they're feeding her so many bananas with dope in that she's probably a bit sick of them by now, to be honest. <laughs> well, apparently more than six is extremely dangerous for you due to the potassium content. Did Peter Andre not nearly have an overdose on potassium after eating too many bananas? <laughs> If he did, this is the first time I'm hearing of it, but I love that story. Yeah, I, I remember hearing something about it somewhere. Uh, if Peter Andre wants to reach out and confirm, then uh, I'm more than happy to, to know what happened. I'll contact his people. Sure. Uh, the plane lands at this point. We are greeted by Joe Pantoliano here as Eddie Ventro, Hawaiian shirt enthusiast, wearer of hats, surprisingly cool with the presence of a talking gorilla in his cart. Well, he's seeing dollar signs. Well, he is, yeah. Yeah, 25k for a female. And a talking gorilla is even more. Who knows how much he didn't? He didn't actually mention. I would say, I would, I would say, double easy. I love Joe Pantoliano. I'm so happy he did this little role. He's great in it, but he's, I think he's uncredited in it. He doesn't come up in. Yeah, really? he is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why that is. I feel like a lot of this film is people going from A to B, 
Uh, this is one of the more eventful trips as we apparently stumble on both a ongoing and very kind of like active civil war and also apparently prevalent cannibalism as well. Yeah, yeah. One of the tribes is practicing cannibalism, we understand. And if they were to go off on their own with one particular tracker or guide, then it's quite possible that they would be eaten and later shot out. Uh, so rather than going with this one guide who is deemed a bit of a joke, Joe Pantoliano's character makes a decision to hire Monroe Kelly. Monroe Kelly. Monroe Kelly steals the film for me. I think he's the best character in, <laughs> in this movie. He is just fantastic. Aaron Hudson's performance here is wonderful. In a movie where we have characters like uh, Tim Curry's Hamolka, to say that Ernie Hudson steals it is quite a statement, but he's fantastic <laughs> as Monroe Kelly. He is absolutely brilliant, and he, like Ernie Hudson, claims that this is his favourite role he's ever done, so... You can forget Winston Zedmore, you can forget about the kind of cop guy and the crow, you can forget about the hand that rocks a cradle. His career is all about Congo. <laughs> That's brilliant. I think that everyone's having a lot of fun <laughs> in this movie. I uh, heard a story, I don't know if this is true, but originally when they started making it, the gorillas were all going to be CGI because this was obviously after the success of Jurassic Park and they thought they could have... Yeah. CGI gorillas in the movie, CGI characters, but the technology wasn't quite there to have fur, realistic fur, so they they kind of decided then to go with uh, men in suits. And I think the film, I don't think it suffers necessarily, but I think it's very obvious that it's a, a man in a suit or a girl in a suit playing each of the individual gorillas. And it sort of looks a bit ridiculous. And I think they realized that on set and just decided fuck it let's just dial this up to 11 on everything on the accents on the performances on the crazy stuff we're gonna do and just have fun with it i'm inclined to agree with that uh, i think the gorillas they look okay but i think it's one of those things that's almost impossible to pull off with a suit i mean they don't look like bolo from the mighty bush they look much better than that and and, and they move okay but there's still just that rubberiness about a gorilla suit but I would still rather see an actor in a suit than digital gorillas. Except for films like the most recent kind of Planet of the Apes films and stuff like that where they look incredible. Yeah, modern films can get away with it with the new CGI, but this would have been unwatchable if they had attempted CGI gorillas back in 95. I think it does suffer a little bit. It's obviously rubbery gorillas, but it looks just as bad now as it did then, which is great because it doesn't age. It doesn't age in the same way yeah. as CG would. That's a really great way of putting that i think actually yeah you're right yeah, um, i mean there's not a gigantic way even nowadays there's no there's no real way to do that any more convincingly than it's done there i don't think that it's any worse for that choice and i think it is the best choice of the options that were available to them at the time absolutely uh, they give amy a cigar at this point or a cigarello andy as you correctly uh, corrected earlier um establishing this film's pattern of wildly mistreating a naive sentient ape but no time to dwell on that because they're intercepted at this point and brought before warlord Captain Wanta. We've talked about Delroy Lindo before. He was in something we did previously and I think I mentioned this scene in a previous episode. Um, I love this scene with Delroy Lindo. He's amazing. It's definitely the most quotable moment of the whole film. It's the memes <laughs> that everyone comes to whenever you mention Congo on Twitter or something. Yeah, fantastic. But has anyone ever actually eaten sesame cake? Because I have not. Nor have I. I'm not sure I have, but I would like to. I should have made some for this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of glad you didn't. Just like just sitting with a mouthful of sesame cake while we're trying to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Having a mouthful of sesame cake would have made this conversation pretty tricky. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I will say is Delroy Lindo's accent is the only one that sounds authentic. Yeah. Uh, good point. It is it is an authentic accent where everyone else is dialing up to eleven and just going ridiculous. He's he's keeping it real. Yeah, I think he's definitely the one that has done the most homework. <laughs> I love that he takes his bribes in a brown paper bag and then staples it closed for safety. That's probably my most quoted line. For I, I say that quite a lot. Just don't want nobody peeking when he says that. When he's- <laughs> staple in the bag i love the way he delivers that line yeah i say it more than i should probably (laughs) (laughs) practically every time you're accepting a bribe (laughs) (laughs) but um this is the first time really that you get an indication that homolka is a well-known kind of figure in the area yeah it seems he's a little bit infamous and we we learn obviously that captain wanda wanta wanda knows that wanta uh, yeah yeah, wanta is aware of him and that also triggers the memory for monroe kelly of a story of his last expedition into the congo of tim curry's last expedition where people died uh i think there was a, a suicide there was people carried out because of exposure and monroe kelly had to carry Hamulkar out of the jungle, but weirdly he didn't recognize him immediately after that. You would think he'd get to know someone <laughs> quite well. Uh, well. The last time he didn't have a beard. <laughs> we shouldn't race past the Captain Wanted thing because obviously what happens here is they are intercepted and basically have to bribe him again, I'd like to say, with more of Karen's hard cash. <laughs> um, and they're kind of dispatched onwards with some of his kind of people. Yeah, he's gonna crew. I think uh, he holds on to their visa. He's got like their visas or their passports or something, so he kind of holds that to answer. Yeah, he's got some collateral there. Yeah, but as you as you said, John, correctly, we do learn a little bit more about Monroe and a couple of other people's prior knowledge of uh, Homoka here. And yeah, it's not good. And at this point, we kind of get a little bit more, but because. When we were watching this, Andy, you pointed out that when Hamolka turns up at the beginning of this uh-huh. and says, I am an eccentric billionaire and I will <laughs> bankroll you taking this talking gorilla back to her home in the Congo and then runs out of money, there is ostensibly no reason for him to get on the plane. Yeah, the, min- the minute the, mo- the, f- the money falls through, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, his part is done in this exchange. But the fact that they keep letting him come with them, despite all these... I think it's fair to say red flags is baffling. I have never even registered that before, but you're 100% right. There is absolutely no reason for him to be along for the entire film. That's going to make me watch it in a whole new light now. <laughs> There's numerous checkpoints where they should have ditched him. <laughs> There's actually another huge part of this movie that has no bearing on it whatsoever, and that's the fact that Amy can talk. It never actually <laughs> has anything to do with the film. She obviously can talk and she has we have some some gags and some jokes and there's some fun moments, but it is never integral to the plot. They could be just releasing any gorilla into the wild. It doesn't actually matter. Holy shit. That's kind of my point (laughs) earlier when I was talking about Amy's voice. Ultimately, she knows sign language. The only two people that can communicate with her anyway are Richard and Peter. So take the backpack off her nothing actually changes except maybe Karen doesn't know that Amy thinks she's ugly. (laughs) And what a loss that would be to the plot. Yeah, we can't have that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. It literally only exists for uh, Amy to throw shade at Karen. (laughs) Mitch, you must love it then with your with your history of uh, with Lenny. Yeah. You, you tell her, Amy. You tell her. <laughs> Amy, oh, unlikable screen presence. 
<laughs> Moving on. Um, they almost get shot down at this point. They traverse, or illegally traverse into Zaire airspace and almost get shot down. Have to parachute to safety in the jungle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, for my money, should be a scene filled with panic. But it's surprisingly calm, and I find it really unsettling. Like, everyone's <laughs> quite pragmatic. I guess you just kind of have to get on with it, though, when the pilot and the co-pilot jump out of the plane. You can't really hang around too much, you know, when when uh, parachutes are flying and they're handing them out like peanuts. It's like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I guess I'm just going to have to jump. By the way, worth mentioning, earlier on, the pilot on the first plane they get on is Margaritaville's very own Jimmy Buffett. Unbelievable. Wow, what a cameo. It's a crazy fact. <laughs> it's a crazy fact. You know, in fairness, I, I couldn't count on myself to keep the same level head that these that these guys do. Well, no, they but... leap into action right away, firing off flares to kind of distract heat-seeking missiles. and uh, It's incredible stuff. Yeah, and then it's a military operation. And, and all of them absolutely fine with parachuting out of a plane. Yep. I, I would be a gibbered mess. But yeah, Monroe straps Amy to his chest and leaps into the air. Yeah, very impressive. If Amy woke up, right, at flying through the air, strapped to a guy she does not barely know, that man would have had his face chewed off. He does, Monroe Kelly does say at the bottom that she woke up and he, he says a line like, that gorilla has got some set of teeth or that little lady has some set of teeth on her or something like that. Ah. Ah. So she does actually wake up. But yeah, miraculously, he emerges from that unscathed. I don't quite know how because I am in agreement with you that I think she would start biting and shredding and I wouldn't like to be <laughs> on a tandem jump with her. No, 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 no. I think I would probably in the bottom five. I don't know whether it would be better for him to jump out the plane with Amy strapped to his chest in a state of panic or me. <laughs> but everyone can everyone makes it back to the ground despite everyone parachuting out of a plane they all find each other really quickly set up a camp monroe starts uh, speculating about broadly what people's motives might be for being here that narrows very quickly to hamoka and we learn a little bit more about why he's here and that is his ongoing decade-spanning hunt for the lost city of zinge 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 is a terrible name for a lost city yeah, I guess. I'm not even going to touch that one because it's, yeah, it's too obvious where we can go with it. But yeah, it's interesting to get a little bit of insight into this because it's obviously going to be our location for Act 3. Mm -hmm. I like the whole story. I like the way that this all came together with Solomon's minds and I'm maybe getting ahead of myself a little bit, but where it's going to go... And the explanation for the threat that we're going to meet very soon, I, I quite enjoy. Yeah, I like it too. I actually really like the way the kind of third act plays out. I think the, the journey getting there can be is a bit monotonous at times. But when you actually get to, I guess, the kind of immediate surround of Zinge, it's pretty great. i got to say, when they're discussing the kind of motives and he says the lost city of Zinge, my... When somebody says something like The Lost City of Zinge in a film, I default to kind of like, oh, here we fuck. <laughs> and then the way that it's... Yeah, I agree. I think that the way that it actually unfolds and what you actually learn about that place and their security measures, shall we say, yeah, sets the film up really nicely for the third act. Well, it's interesting you mention that, Mitch, because round about this time, they kind of take up base camp on a mountain and uh, Karen reaches back out to Travis and they've analysed the footage and they've established that the creature that knocked over the camera earlier is some kind of gorilla. Yeah, and in that same conversation, quite a nice little callback to the initial communication with Bruce Campbell. Uh, Amy's running around fooling around with Peter and she runs behind Karen, takes out the satellite, knocks down the connection and it's and to Travis 
back in Houston, it looks exactly like the original attack. So he thinks that something might have happened to Karen. I actually really like that bit. I pointed yeah, cool that idea. out when, cool um, when it was on. Uh, also, around about this time, there's another kind of unsettling glimpse into Peter's relationship with Amy when they're roughhousing together. Yep. Don't like it. Thankfully, the film doesn't explore their relationship too much. But I no, found it no. I found it fairly harmless. But I can see why it could be read in another way. <laughs> I don't know. She's just too grown up. She, she is, Mitch. She behaves like a grown up. Right. With her little girl's voice. <laughs> Stop it. The film also does actually plant some seeds of like possible, I think, possible romance between Peter and Karen. <laughs> you kind of see them. Yeah. You, get, you kind of see them exchanging some glances and some kind of jokes and stuff. However, Peter's orders are presumably lowered when he wakes up in the morning with a leech on his penis. <laughs> Tell you what, any scene in any film where somebody's got a leech on their cock is superb. <laughs> it's a classic trope that's made me terrified of going into any open, wild water or still stagnant water because I just know if there's any leeches in there, I know what they're going for. Yeah, your cock. Also, I, I've mentioned on the show before, that fish that swims up your urethra. Stop talking about that fucking fish. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I agree. I, I have been scaremongered into staying away from uh, estuaries, fjords, fjords, rivers, any small body of water for the exact same reason, John. I regard them all with a large amount of suspicion. I also don't go into tall grass for fear of Lyme disease. That's another thing I've got to add to the list now. Thanks. Great. Lyme disease, tall grass. <laughs> I'm just going to go over and wrap myself in cotton wool. I really like the scene where uh, it's kind of late at night and none of them can sleep because the jungle's a wild, noisy place. And Monroe Kelly's sitting enjoying another cigarillo and everyone's kind of getting up and like, what's all that fucking noise? And it's uh, collarboss monkeys just fucking like crazy in the trees. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the point where I think that little hint of a relationship between uh, Peter and Karen. There's a little bit of magic in the air between them at that moment <laughs> when they're surrounded well, they are. by that orgy. <laughs> so just uh, <laughs> if you can't beat them, join them, huh? <laughs> <laughs> At this point, um, or it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of around this time, we have an encounter with uh, some tribesmen. Yeah. Yeah, they communicate with Monroe and uh, they spook both him and particularly Karen with uh, tales of a sighting of a dead white man. I think this bit's really unsettling. Yeah, I think this works really nicely. Yeah, we, we go through, we follow the tribe through the forest back to this man that they've discovered this body and Karen uh, learns that it's one of the people from the original expedition, a guy called Bob Driscoll. He comes to, he's in a bad way, and he sees our our uh, protagonist, Amy, or one of our main characters, the lovely Amy, harmless Amy, <laughs> and he screams so violently that he just dies. He just croaks, gone. Yep. Yeah, scared to death. Uh, so Karen and uh, the other characters sort of follow his gaze, the last thing that he saw, and they realize... It was a gorilla. That's uh, setting up what we're going to discover is potentially guarding Zinge very soon. Yeah. But before that, we've got a little uh, river journey with a nice rendition of California Dreaming as they yet again dope up a monkey. <laughs> uh, this movie, the, my main takeaway from this scene when they're setting up is that California Dreaming, when everyone, because there's a lot of vocal tracks in that song and everyone is getting a turn, everyone's singing a different part. That song is weird when it's all sung by people with baritone voices. <laughs> they've definitely been practicing it as well because it was well rehearsed oh i refuse to believe that was off the cuff <laughs> <laughs> like no way 
I couldn't sing the lyrics to California Dreaming just off the cuff. <laughs> Much less like a 20 strong crew of people. <laughs> Hamoka talks a little bit more about the uh, the Diamond Mines and the Lost City. Yeah, um, and King Solomon and a lot of guff. Yeah, and he kind of, like, in what is initially a very confusing comment to me, he talks about how uh, Amy is kind of their ace in the hole of him definitely finding it this time. Sure. But obviously he goes on, and I, again, this obviously on its face is kind of fairly ludicrous but in terms of how it moves the plot forward i quite like it so basically saying that like when he's seen amy's paintings which he sees her do earlier and it's kind of thrown in kind of casually he's got a magazine photo like a, a page from a magazine yeah like i say it's dropped in kind of very innocuously but he's just like oh what do you suppose that she's painting we find out that the reason that he's so interested in that is because one of the symbols that she's painted matches the ring that we see him holding at the start and he believes that she's drawing it because she's been there and therefore can lead them to it. What if I was totally wrong? These are the, this is the art of a gorilla. Like, it's not to be trusted. <laughs> yeah, I probably wouldn't fly all the way across the world. But he, we've seen him, he's done it before. He's probably gone in to this jungle before with less equipment, less security, less manpower on less than a printout or a cutout from a magazine so this is the kind of guy we're dealing with yeah i mean like every, the minute that everybody remembers who he is there's this instant oh this fucking guy thing again so i mean <laughs> like, like it's a perfectly acceptable theory that the character as presented is a moron <laughs> uh, all this exposition is disrupted by a couple of giant hippos i just wrote uh, my note at this point as hippo attack in capital letters yeah, this is a fantastic sequence. I think this is one of the more mm -hmm. memorable sequences. We're getting into some big battles now, and there's this one and another coming soon that are just fantastic. This is another practical. The hippo is obviously another practical effect by uh, Stan Winston Studio, who did the, the gorillas, and this one is really mm -hmm. effective. It looks so good. Mm -hmm. We've obviously got the advantage of it happening at night, so we're just getting glimpses of it, but they're uh, peacefully paddling across a river, and we've got people on watch scanning the surface of the water. Feel a little bump, which wakes up Peter and Amy from their sleep, and then all hell breaks loose when a giant hippo, or maybe a few hippos, breach the water and take out one, two of the boats, a couple of the men. We see some carnage here, and I think we get our first kills. Yeah, I believe that's true. Yeah, yeah, a couple of the a couple of the kind of guides they're they're off. I believe they're portals. Is that what they're referred to? Ah, uh, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, I'm good. This takes me nicely into a segment that I'm going to call Dun -dun -dun Hippo Facts. Oh my! Have you been doing your hippo homework? Yep, I've got some hippo facts. Okay. Are you ready, John? I cannot wait to hear these hippo facts. Well, let me tell you, hippos are the world's deadliest land mammal. Really? Oh, that is surprising. Yeah, I wouldn't have put them in the top ten. They are, they are. They're responsible for roughly 500 deaths per year, possibly as many as 2,000. Jesus Christ. That's one to five per day. <laughs> <laughs> also, they can grow to between 2,750 kilograms and 3,500 kilograms. I thought you were going to say 2,750 metres high. <laughs> <laughs> and they can also run at 19 miles per hour. That's not bad. Wow. Yeah. What you're saying what? is that perhaps the Lost City of Zin should have been guarded by hippos. <laughs> I think anyway, no one should have a guard dog. Every, you should have a guard hippo. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't fight. I mean, you shouldn't fight dogs anyway, right? You shouldn't fight chickens or cockerels. Thanks for clearing up. But what Great. I want to see, if I'm going to watch two animals of the same species fighting, I want to see hippos fighting. <laughs> have you ever seen it? Like, have you ever seen them? They go, ah, and they've got the big mouths, wide, wide mouths, and the teeth, and they're digging into each other. It's brutal stuff. 
Basically, one thing that I'm getting from these hippo facts yeah. uh, is certainly that the devastation wreaked on our protagonists here by the hippos could very well have played out in real life. This could very well be how this could have gone down. This happens all the time, Mitch. 500 times a year. <laughs> by the sounds of it, they got off lightly just losing a two porters. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. So what you can take away from this, listeners and indeed yourself, Mitch and John, hippos are fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be fooled. <laughs> I'm scared. Also, <laughs> just added to the list. John. Also, they've got pink sweat and pink milk. Oh, I think you should have led with oh. that. That's fascinating. <laughs> they've got pink milk. Yeah, uh, that note was on another page. <laughs> I had to flip page, and I was like, ah, I forgot a very important hippo fact. <laughs> when you said another page, I thought that you meant you had to switch your browser to incognito mode to find that one. <laughs> Right, but at this point, once we kind of shake off shake off the hippos, if you like, they set up camp and the group make the unquestionably savvy decision to follow the gorilla. Onward we do go. At this point, there's kind of a... I don't want to say that it's like a narrative sag, but I think that there's a few things that they find that they just, by what's driving the narrative, have to find them to set up where we're going and where this and where the plot is going and stuff. First off with, like, the, bird, the burned-out plane. Yeah. The burned-out plane that held the previous crew. Sure, yes. Um, yeah. And then also a standoff with some other gorillas one of which amy clearly fancies yeah she's she's wet for that gorilla um but he shuns her pretty devastatingly we get to see peter really being a bit of a badass here as well because when that silverback gorilla comes out of the foliage comes out of the jungle across their path him and monroe kelly have a little moment where it's standing its ground and they're stock still and they know that if they turn and run it's going to chase them so they have to just stand and it this big huge silverback does charge it runs right up into the face of peter but stops screams a little bit beats its chest and then decides no okay peter didn't move i'm going to i'm going to leave him be and we get this great little moment where peter is standing he kind of visibly just sags as he sighs and lets out that the stress that he was holding turns around and ernie hudson is nowhere to be seen he's bolted uh, it's a fantastic little moment <laughs> and a little win for Peter, I think. No, no, no. He alphas that gorilla. Uh, and then uh, Monroe Kelly goes, I ran away. <laughs> it is amazing when he comes back. Because I agree, John. I think that when the actual standoff for the gorilla happens and everyone has to kind of stand kind of ramrod straight and still, um, I think the tension of that is great. And I think that it works exactly as it's supposed to. But I do love the way that he's just like, I ran away. Sorry about that. When he comes back. It's the fun that he's having, Ernie. Yeah, I can totally see why Ernie Hudson would say this is the most fun I've had in a row because he's just nailing every scene. He's dialing up every line to 11. Brilliant. We also, at this point, again, this is kind of like I say, they just kind of have to make a certain sequence of discoveries at this point, I think. And uh, kind of not too far from the burned out plane and not too far from the gorillas, we do find the ruined camp from the beginning, but interestingly, no bodies. Sure, yeah, they're all, they're all missing. And then um, moments later, mere moments later, they blindly stumble into the city as in. I could not be less happy for Hiboka at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> this is his life's work. I think uh, Tim Curry (laughs) plays this really well, actually. The way you can really see in everything about the way he delivers this line and the way he's his presence in this moment of just how great it feels to finally be here after so long. I think a lot of people see Tim Curry's performance in this as a little bit silly, and of course it is very silly, but there are yeah. he is actually putting in a really good performance as well. You do get the feeling that this is a culmination of a life's work. 
I think Tim Curry's amazing and I think he's brilliant in this moment. Like you can see the emotion in his face that he's finally here and he's finally been proven correct. He's been called a crazy bastard for years and he's right. He's been right all along. I feel like as soon as they come in here, tensions seem to like immediately flare. Everything gets very adversarial. There's quite a lot of tension going on. So everyone goes inside apart from uh, Richard and a guard called Claude. Who <laughs> I love Claude. <laughs> who rightfully calls uh, calls Richard out for a weird piece of racial profiling when he says, I'm Richard, what's your name? And the guy says, I'm Claude. And Richard genuinely says something along the lines of, oh, that's an unusual name for wherever it is you're from. <laughs> yeah, Claude from Mombasa, we learn. Oh, that's an unusual name for someone from Mombasa. Have you ever been to Mombasa? no then what do you know about it yeah it's a great little moment it is it's amazing i believe french is quite widely spoken across the continent of africa yeah i think this is very much about richard's ignorance yes more than anything else it's around this time that they head kind of into i don't want to say it's a cave because it's all very elaborately uh it's got hieroglyphics and stuff it's like it's like a city yeah um it's like streets and tunnels and kind of what's a mine i suppose yeah but um they don't have too long to admire anything because they're pretty quickly beset by both falling rocks and rampaging gorillas here and we do get a kind of a proper good look at your kind of boss level gorillas doesn't one of them launch a head at them yep (laughs) that's an incredibly satisfying moment yeah this is kind of a grisly scene actually i remember this scene really affecting me when i was young and saw it for the first time because this is when Mm. richard is uh, has been outside with claude he gets attacked and we cut to inside the mine uh, or inside the city and then they hear richard screaming from afar and he comes running in covered in blood again reaches them and just uh like driscoll earlier just dies almost immediately in quite a horrible scene and then yeah behind him is one of the mutant grey gorillas that are defending this city and they yeah they lob I think it's Claude's head actually I think it's Claude's head that they throw yeah this entire scene plays out really chaotically when they kind of have to they have their first kind of wave of gorillas that they have to kind of uh force back and then they set up camp outside the city I feel like so much of this film is them setting up camps in places I also, I do like the, um, and John, you said, obviously, you thought that this might be set in the near future. I really like the level of gadgetry that goes into them trying to defend themselves from the gorillas through the night. Oh, you mean like UV lights and lasers, like it's a fucking Jean-Michel Jarre concert? Yeah, exactly. And we've also got the aliens-like automated turrets that are uh, scanning the the jungle for uh, threats outside that, and they very quickly start firing at unseen things in the foliage. Sorry, John, I think that what you're talking about there are the sensor-operated machine pistols. I believe I am. Thank you for the correction. Mm, a sump. <laughs> you have a textbook sump. This film is kind of doing a, a very obvious gear shift at this point. Right, yes. Homolka, I, I mean, this is ridiculous, but I love it. When Homolka emerges, says that they have figured out what the hieroglyphs say, and the hieroglyphs say, we are watching you. Yeah, yeah. Don't you think that while all this is going on, though, and they're like being beset by wave after wave of killer gorilla, it still never seems to be high stakes. <laughs> yeah, and, and we've also got, which we haven't mentioned, or maybe we did mention earlier, but we we haven't reminded everyone of it, is there's an active volcano that we're on, and it's beginning <laughs> to erupt. Like, we're getting tremors. So the ground is shaking. It's really just adding insult to injury at the moment. Things are getting yeah. crazy, but yeah, maybe it doesn't actually feel that urgent. Um, but you're quite right, uh, John. I, we haven't mentioned that, and it is probably a reasonably prescient thing to point out. 
that yes, all of this third act is taking place around an active volcano. Is this still Mount Makenko? Is that where we are? Mm, maybe. Yeah, okay. The others kind of discern from the hieroglyphs that the villagers of Zinj sure. have bred and trained super violent grey gorilla super soldiers to protect the diamonds <laughs> and uh, to kind of insulate the site of many attacks, which th- this kind of feels like an old worldy equivalent of Bond villains revealing their plans. Right, okay. But I love the way this is relayed and I love the, I love the notion that the methodology of that would have been set out in hieroglyphics all over the wall to say, to be fair, I'd be proud of it too if it was my idea. Certainly. <laughs> they trained them and then the, the story goes, we learn or what we assume happened, what our characters assume, is that the gorillas that they had trained and bred for violence got so difficult to handle that they actually killed the teachers and probably killed everyone that lived in the city. Yeah, and then but then carried on defending it as they had been trained. <laughs> I think. Ex- exactly, yeah. So they've just been defending this, breeding and continually getting more and more violent, more and more mutated, I guess, because we get a look at them soon and they have got quite a distinct look about them. They're all sort of, they've got welts and strange skin conditions on them, so they look pretty grisly. They've just been living in their own little world in Zinj for centuries and that's why no one has found the diamonds up until this point or no one gets out alive also a distinct lack of gorilla feces <laughs> it's very clean maybe they just yeah. didn't find the bathrooms they didn't find the bathrooms in the city of Zinj we didn't go there sure I mean, it's part um, of their training yeah Mitch feathery jump scare oh my god yeah once again I am very easily startled by a jump scare involving a bird <laughs> <laughs> just add it to the fucking list <laughs> Uh, they find the diamond mines at this point, and Hamoka obviously very excited, but before anybody can enjoy that moment too much, like you say, John, we are beset by the product of generations of breeding mutant superior soldier gorillas. Yeah, Amy correctly identifying them as bad, ugly gorillas. I feel like ugly is a cheap shot, but bad, I would say, is fair. They're pretty fucking ugly. <laughs> they're not yeah, that they're- handsome big bastard out in the forest. No, they're not the silverback, I've got to admit. The silverback is the top of the rung here, and these guys are just, you know, I think it's best if they just stay down in the dark of the of their little mines. <laughs> I think you guys are being pretty unkind, but okay. Are you for real? <laughs> um, to borrow a phrase from a previous episode of this show, there is some serious fucking chimp murder going on here. I was, and John, you said obviously, obviously it wasn't too long ago that we saw the head getting lobbed, but this, by its nature, for most of its runtime, is not that gory a film. The scene where they eventually kind of get the upper hand on the gorillas is a fucking bloodbath. Well, before that, Hamolka's running around like a madman, gathering up diamonds into his, like, filling all his pockets and every orifice he's got with diamonds. These gorillas, they, they're not going to let that shit slide. This is what they've been trained to do. Presumably they don't have a lot to do for most of the time. Yeah. It's yeah. a lost city, after all. Um, so yeah, they, they just beat them to death. It's a great sound. It cuts to black just as they crush Hamolker's head, but the sound is one of the sweetest sounds in head-crushing cinema, I think. It's really lovely. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nasty way to go. Good old hit a watermelon with a brick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's set up a little bit earlier that they've been crushing heads. So that's their method of dispatching people, I think, is crushing heads, which is lovely. Yeah, a good old head smash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At this point, also in the middle of all the kind of chaos of how this is unfolding, we also unearth Charles's body. 
Yeah, he is dead, as if anyone was under any illusions about that. No, it's a poor one out for Bruce Campbell, but dead and still clutching a blue diamond. Yep, which Karen immediately proceeds to start loading into the laser gun that we'd forgotten about, remember uh, Chekhov's laser? Yep, never have a laser gun in Act 1 that you don't use to kill gorillas in Act 3. Let's talk about this laser just briefly. What is this laser? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, this laser. It's something to do with communication, but all it does is burn things it burns trees it clearly burns gorillas probably burns people i don't see how it would help do any type of communication it's just a weapon it also doesn't have a trigger it seems to be operated by a small keypad which is preposterous (laughs) i hadn't noticed that but i think you're probably right yeah it's not a very well designed communications device because it burns things (laughs) and it's not a great weapon (laughs) because it doesn't have a trigger so i don't know what its point is Early on in the film, they say something like, uh, it's for communications, apparently, but if you put a diamond from the city of Zinj in it, it's strong enough that it could score the moon. It could score the moon. Yeah. There we go. At this point, uh, just because there's not enough going on already, the volcano erupts. (laughs) Sure. The lava looks pretty dreadful here, uh, but the actual kind of world collapsing the kind of like the Mm -hmm. kind of opening the big drifts and things like that i think that that plays out quite nicely like visually well all this is going on just as peter's about to get smashed to pieces as well he's about to get his head caved in and Amy comes to the rescue, completely bamboozling the evil grey gorillas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, she jumps in and saves the day, and it, I guess it kind of completes her little arc or something. It's her heroic moment, and she calls all the gorillas ugly, and they leave. But again, she doesn't really need to talk. She get, it's more effective when she growls at them, but it's a nice moment. Yeah, she's protective of them. She finds this is her moment, because she calls Africa her mother, mm-hmm. and she is the mother of that little gorilla toy that she's got. Yep. But this is not her moment to be kind of protective of Peter, I suppose, who's looked after her, presumably since she was a baby. Yeah. So yeah, I agree, John. This is this is a, this is a good kind of full circle or a fulfillment of her arc. And at this point, yeah, any other gorillas that weren't body shamed into going home by her calling them ugly perish in the lava. Yeah, they, they, some of them are just jumping into lava. Like, they're just leaping in. Yep. And yeah, so at this point, the threat is kind of nullified and this film moves into what I think is one of its stranger passages. I think the last few minutes of this are uh, pretty bizarre in a few different ways. I like the end. It's just another set of obstacles to get through. You know, we've had jumping out of a plane earlier. We've had white water rafting. We've had trucks. We've had trucks. We've had hippos. We've kind of done everything. So now we just have to have, you know, the earth opening up and us jumping over uh, lava flows, lava rivers, downing trees and crossing that. It's a nice little set piece, I think. Oh, yeah, I think it's an overall piece of work. I think it works pretty much pretty great. Yeah, and um, our kind of key players survive this. Karen survives, Monroe survives, Peter and Amy survive. I was sad to see Cahaga die. I liked him. Yep. But, uh, yeah, immediately, without breaking a, a stride at all, Karen calls Travicom and um, tells Travis that his son's dead and he could not give a fuck. Yeah, and she warned him right back at the start if she ever thought that he, he had sent her out here for anything other than Charles, she was going to make him sorry. And she does sure it. was. She so sure she does. puts that communications device to perfect use and detonates a satellite with it. <laughs> well, I don't understand. Honestly, I don't even understand this bit, really. I think that they were talking about the satellite earlier and I thought he said something about the satellite being redundant in a few years anyway. He might be talking about a okay. different satellite. So it doesn't seem like that much of a loss. But I think it's just a a dramatic way for her to hang up. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's amazing. That's exactly what it is. And at this point, yeah. She... Also, she's definitely fired. Uh, yeah, I would say that that's probably true. Um, at this point, also, she fortuitously finds a usable hot air balloon in the burned out wreckage of the plane. <laughs> which is useful. Sure, sure, sure. Amy bids Peter an emotional farewell. And it, and it is emotional. It's not, it's not quite Bigfoot and the Hendersons emotional. But it's fairly emotional. I think so. And we also find out at this point, in the middle of this emotional farewell, that uh, she has successfully uh, shacked up with the sexy gorilla from earlier, which is nice. Sure, Peter's gutted, he's been dumped. Um, <laughs> it's so funny, like, seconds after she's out of eyesight, she is going to be aggressively fucked by that big, strong male gorilla. <laughs> That's for Congo too. <laughs> So yeah, our protagonists head away. Amy tearfully watches the departing balloon. John, how are you feeling about this as an ending? I think it's a relatively satisfying ending. I, I agree with you guys. I think the separation between Amy and Peter does tug in the heartstrings a little bit. Um, <laughs> but when they take off in the, the balloon, my overriding thought is just that it's great, it's lovely. But as soon as the credits roll, I'm fairly confident that as they cross the border again, one of those heat-seeking missiles is going to make short work of that balloon. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I said to Mitch. I was like, <laughs> they, they, they had to navigate through a, a minefield in the sky in an airplane. An extremely slow-moving hot air balloon is going to be taken down in a heartbeat. Yeah, so the post-credit sequence, uh, which no one waits, hangs around for, is is pretty grim, you know. It's a downer ending when they get shot down. Yeah. They're then finally being eaten by that cannibal tribe. <laughs> yeah, never introduce a cannibal tribe in Act 2 that don't eat your protagonists by the end of Act 3. In the post-credits thing, <laughs> And um, at the instruction of Karen, uh, Peter throws the diamond away. Yeah. And we are out on Congo. Andy. Yeah. How many times have you seen this before? How long has it been since you've seen it? What did you take away from it this time? It's been about a year and a bit. Like, I suppose that's fairly recently. Yeah, I would say that's pretty uh, I've probably seen it ten times, maybe. Right, okay. Um, I've got a lot of time for Congo, but what I had forgotten is actually how slow it gets in the middle. I remembered it being much more action-packed throughout. Okay. But the the, the middle segment is a little bit of a, a slog. Act 2 takes its time. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in agreement with that. I, I like the way this film sets up, and I like the way some of the kind of exposition unfolds. I think the last half hour or so plays out in a really satisfying way. I think that there is a little bit of kind of narrative heavy lifting that has to go on in the middle there that I think kind of slows it down a little bit, but I wouldn't say that it slows it down fatally. I would say that that's kind of something that Frank Marshall does quite often because I would say the same thing for Arachnophobia. Really strong opening. It sets the scene nicely. Then there's a real kind of slow bit in the middle. Obviously, a couple of people die. That's fine. And then it's batshit crazy house full of spirals at the end. And kind of the same with Alive. Big plane crash, a lot of being hungry in the cold, and then eating people to survive in the third act. I mean, a lot of movies do suffer from, like, second act problems because you've got a setup, you've got an ending, but linking them in an exciting way is, you know, it's a problem that happens for a few movies. I think this one's got enough fun set pieces in the middle to kind of hold up the second act but I can understand why what you're saying. No, I, I actually, I, I agree with you. I think there is enough to keep it going. There's enough kind of fuel in the tank to keep it ticking along till it gets topped up in act three and again, going back to our, like arachnophobia, I think having the characters in there that are the real kind of comic, less so with Alive but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the characters in there that are kind of the comedy characters like John Goodman's Delbert McClintock the exterminator guy in Arachnophobia and I suppose probably more Monroe Kelly than Hamulka 
Although Homolka does get some really fun lines, mm-hmm. characters like that help to kind of, I guess, soften the journey, the kind of Shire to Mordor-like journey that is the second act to Congo. Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't qualify this by saying as well, I mean, I'm, I don't think that the sag that we're talking about or kind of some of the kind of A to B stuff that it has to do, I mean, I don't think that it ever hampers the momentum in a way that feels like fatal. I don't think that it ever stammers for too long. It's not derailing the film. No, not at all. John, I can totally see why you picked it and I'm really glad that we've done it. Yeah, I'm so glad we've done it. It was be, it's been in the fire so long. It's ready. It was ready. It was time. And it was just it just it it we needed one brave man to step up, <laughs> pull the sword from the stone. And uh, John, thank you very much for being that man. Yes, you were the hero we needed. You guys are very welcome. I'm happy, happy <laughs> to have done it. So, Mitch. Yes. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Would you revisit Congo? Would you tell people to watch Congo? I'm not going to revisit Congo immediately. Um, and I feel like I've said this a lot recently but I think that it's a really good beers and pizzas movie with some friends I would say that that would work I could see myself doing that at some point in the future it won't be next week right okay put it that way okay John, before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some stuff that you have been working on lately because a few things going on. Yeah, yeah, we've had a couple of things going on. Myself and Zoe, who you guys know, our mutual friend uh, Zoba with a shotgun, we've been recording a podcast together. We've got a couple episodes out. It's called A Nice Chianti. Uh, we have another one on the way. We're hoping to uh, get a few more recorded. We have no structure, we have no uh, release <laughs> schedule. It's literally just me and Zoe getting together, getting drunk and talking about very random movie choices. So I've got that going on. Yeah, did you did you do the holiday recently? Yes, we did. Yeah, that was the last episode <laughs> that came out, I think. We put that to Twitter. That was, uh, we've got Twitter to thank for that one. I see. We, we knew we were going to do a rom-com and uh, we each selected a couple and, you know, Twitter spoke and we watched The Holiday, and uh, have you guys seen The Holiday? I'm going to tell you, I'm not a fan. I saw uh, the holiday not a fan f- at all. I saw The Holiday for the first time this Christmas because it is one of my girlfriend's favourite Christmas movies. We dug that out at the same time as I dug out Krampus. Lovely. Oh, nice. Um, what a double bill. The, <laughs> yeah, the holiday, the holiday and Krampus together at last. Now, John, can I ask you, was The Holiday yours or Zoe's choice? It was Zoe's choice, uh, so it might be surprising wow. to learn for anyone who knows the kind of films that our friend Zobo usually discusses, which are of the extreme horror nature, that she has a a soft spot for the holiday. She loves the holiday. It is one of our favorites. So yeah, she chose that one. I was happy to experience it. Uh, It was a first watch for me. I had some issues with it, but overall (laughs) I found it I found enough in it that I didn't feel like my time was wasted. Came away from it, it was it it was okay. It's 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 got enough for a film fan because it t- uh, half of it half of the story takes place in Los Angeles there's quite a lot of cinema influences going on in the movie and I could hang on that and enjoy myself but yeah the holiday was an experience for me and not one that I would ever have picked up <laughs> otherwise um, yeah this is the longest that we've ever talked about a rom-com in this podcast <laughs> very diplomatic of you John and uh, also some stuff going on writing wise for you just now Yeah, I've had uh, some short stories published on uh, another podcast called The Other Stories, Hawk and Cleaver's The Other Stories. Um, I just had one come out a few weeks ago called Rubber Jungle, which I co-wrote with my writing partner, Hannah Mariska. That went down well. Recently released a book called The Nest, which I wrote alongside three other writers, Ben Errington, 
Daniel Wilcox and Andy Conduit Turner. So that's available in paperback, which was quite exciting. And I have some more lined up this year. Superb. Lots of stuff happening. John, where can people keep up with you for social media purposes to uh, find out about these things as they're happening? If anyone would like to connect on social media, I'm at John Crinan on both Twitter and Instagram. And that's J-O-H-N-C-R-I-N-A-N. John, thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. And thanks for finally being the man to bring us Congo. I'm so happy, John. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for making Mitch watch Congo. Gentlemen, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So we're back. We are. 2020, a whole new year. What delights we have in store for you. I know, so much stuff. And first and foremost, big thank you to Mr John Crane. And to Michael Crichton for Congo, without whose book it wouldn't exist. Yes, of course. And check out everything John's up to. He's got some really cool things on the works just now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And check out a nice Chianti podcast. Definitely. And with that, I guess we're out for the first main episode of 2020. I'm glad. I, I, I was worried that it was going to be. I was going to be rusty. I was thinking the same. I was a little bit concerned. Yeah, but I think. I think. I think we're okay. Yeah, I think we got there. Um, if you think differently or would like <laughs> to make us feel better about that, then there are loads of ways you can get in touch with us. Um, between now and when we return on Monday with another mini sode for your ears, Facebook and Instagram, we're Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC, and you can email Strong Language Violent Scenes at gmail.com. And did you know we've got a website? Do we? Yeah, we do. It's strongviolentpod.com where you can find links to our Public page, live dates as and when they're announced. You can find all the links to the socials that Mitch just mentioned. And of course, you can find a non-exhaustive list of just about everywhere you can listen to us. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, wherever you are listening, if you're feeling charitable at the beginning of a new year, you want to throw us a rating, a review, a subscription, a share, all that kind of thing. Yeah be great and you know what i just want to take this opportunity to thank everybody for coming back in 2020 and giving us hopefully another year of your time we do hope so we'll be back monday join us then if you can in the meantime don't forget it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds goodbye bye You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.